The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. Let's take our Bibles now, if you would, and let's open them to Leviticus chapter 16. I'd like you to hold your place in that scripture for a while. It'll be a little bit before we get to it. And this afternoon, we begin the last part of our series on seeking the Savior in the sacrifices. And it's appropriate that our subject would be the atonement this evening at the same time that we observe the Lord's Supper. Our intent in this study has been to find the work of Christ that is bound up in the sacrifices and rituals of Old Testament worship that Israel was commanded to observe. And there were five types of daily sacrifices that were made. Uh, These were foundational to all the other sacrifices, such as those that were made only on special occasions. And I'm not going to rehearse all of those, the different aspects of the sweet savor and non-sweet savor offerings. You've heard me do that in many, many messages. So we're not going to spend time on those differences. But we do understand that each of them was very important in their significance, that each had a way of drawing out some special aspect of how Christ is an all-sufficient Savior. And all of those sacrifices culminated in the most important day of worship, And that was called the Day of Atonement. And the Israelites regarded this day with such significance that they referred to it only as the day. So if anyone said the day, then no one would mistake their meaning. It was the highest and the holiest day on Israel's calendar. Now we might even find an allusion to it in Hebrews chapter 7, where the author says in verses 26 and 27... For such an high priest became us who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners and made higher than the heavens, who needeth not daily as those high priests to offer up sacrifice, first for his own sins and then for the people's. For this he did once when he offered up himself. Now the question is, does the author mean there is one day of atonement in distinction to all the daily sacrifices by the priest? Or does he mean that Christ was offered on one day and that was sufficient? Then in another place in the book of Acts, Luke described Paul's journey to Rome. And this was just before he was shipwrecked on Malta. And he wrote at at that time that the time for sailing was past. And he mentioned that it was past the time of the feast. The feast was already passed, and that feast referred to all the activities that centered around the Day of Atonement. And so likewise, if someone just simply said the feast, then that was understood to be the same as the Day of Atonement and that last week, that week-long sacrifice, week-long celebration. I use the word celebration. We'll cover that in just a moment. But that week-long observance of the Day of Atonement that ended in the feast for the time of harvest and so on. So this, the point of that is, though, that the Day of Atonement was the day. We're talking about the most significant day of Israel's calendar. Now, it's interesting the way that the Lord plans to make all things work together. There aren't any loose ends. 
There are no insignificant details in Scripture about what Christ does, especially when it comes to the offering of these sacrifices, that this feast was observed in the seventh month. Do you, do you need for me to go through the number seven? That is significant. It was done in the seventh month. That's The seventh month is the one that closed out the cycle of feast. And seven tells us that it was a sabbatical month. Then after a series of seven years, that is seven times seven, in the 50th year there was a jubilee. There was a year in which they let the land rest. It was a time of release when portions of lands that had been sold reverted to their original owners. It was a time to free slaves and to forgive debts. And at the end of the 49th year, there was a jubilee that was announced on the Day of Atonement. In Leviticus 25, verses 8 and 9, And thou shalt number seven Sabbaths of years unto thee, seven times seven years, and the space of the seven Sabbaths of years shall be unto thee forty and nine years. Then shalt thou cause the trumpet of the jubilee to sound on the earth on the tenth day of the seventh month, in the day of atonement shall she make, ye shall make the trumpet sound throughout all your land. Now it's not hard for us to imagine that this day of jubilee was, that pictured, pictures our freedom in Christ when all of our sins were taken away. And that's a very good scripture for you to read and mark that and read it in its context at a later time. And one of the reasons that I inserted the mini-series that we had on the high priest as we talked about his garments and his work was because without the high priest and his functions, this day would not work. The priest must do his job on this day to make this most important sacrifice. And yet it's worthy for us to note that after following all of the instructions, after keeping every point of the law and every detail and the finest of details, after the priest had done exactly what he was commanded to do and dressed the way that he should, still it's not enough. And strangely enough, the law is its own testimony that it is never enough. I want you to turn to Hebrews chapter 7. Still keep your finger there in Leviticus 16. We will get there. But in Hebrews 7, we can see the insufficiency of this day. This day is announced and yet it will be insufficient to do what needs to be done. Now the subject in this passage is the priesthood of Christ who is a priest after the order of Melchizedek. And in Hebrews 7 verse 15... And it is yet far more evident, for that after the similitude of Melchizedek, there ariseth another priest, who is made not after the law of a carnal commandment, but after the power of an endless life. For he testifieth that thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. For there is verily a disannulling of the commandment going before for the weakness and the unprofitableness thereof. For the law made nothing perfect. But the bringing in of a better hope did, by the which we draw nigh unto God. And so for every attempt to make every point of the law done perfectly, still the law itself cannot make anything perfect. Then if you go over to the ninth chapter, in verse number 6, Hebrews 9, verse number 6. Now when these things were thus ordained, the priests went always into the first tabernacle accomplishing the service of God, that is, into the first part of that tabernacle, but into the second, 
went the high priest alone once every year, not without blood, which he offered for himself and for the errors of the people. The Holy Ghost is signifying that the way into the holiest of all was not yet made manifest, while as the first tabernacle was yet standing. Then verse number 11. But Christ being come a high priest of good things to come by a greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this building, neither by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood, he entered in once into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. And I refer you to those verses to show you that sacrifices were made continually. For 1,500 years, from Moses to Christ, sacrifices were made according to the law. But still, after all these sacrifices for so many years, there is still something that is lacking. Still, there's something that needs to be done. Still, more needs to be done. And still, there's nothing that is complete. And in the 50th year of Jubilee, which is the culmination of seven years of Sabbaths, it did nothing to start anything but another cycle of other Sabbaths. And we need to really catch the importance of that because it enhances the Scripture's insistence that we can never be saved by the law. And the Jews should have recognized it because their own sacrifices were endless. There wasn't a stopping point to it. They never reached the end where they say, oh, this is enough. We don't need to make any more sacrifices. We have finally made the last sacrifice that needs to be made. And I don't know if that point sticks out to you, but the greatest day of their year, the Day of Atonement, neither was that the end of anything. The next year, the same has to be done. Then the next, and then the next. Finally, after seven years, they reach a year of jubilee, but it's not a jubilee of sacrifices. And it only makes evident that the law is never satisfactory. And so the very best thing that can come out of this Day of Atonement is that it would point them to Jesus Christ. And it would point them to the day of final salvation. God gave sacrifices and only God can end them. And only the object of the rituals can end them. And he would do it by a better sacrifices that are made by a better priest. Now if you'll go to Leviticus 16... There are instructions for the Day of Atonement, and we're not going to read the entire chapter now, but let's keep this open so we can refer to it. And the first ten verses are a summary of the day's activities. Leviticus 16, verse number 1, And the Lord spake unto Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron, when they offered before the Lord and died. And the Lord said unto Moses, Speak unto Aaron thy brother, that he come not at all times into the holy place within the veil before the mercy seat, which is upon the ark, that he die not, for I will appear in the cloud upon the mercy seat. Thus shall Aaron come into the holy place with a young bullock for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering. He shall put on the holy linen coat, and he shall have the linen breeches upon his flesh, and shall be girded with a linen girdle. And with the linen miter shall be he be attired. These are holy garments. Therefore shall he wash his flesh in water and so put them on. And he shall take of the congregation of the children of Israel two kids of the goats for a sin offering and one ram for a burnt offering. And Aaron shall offer his bullock of the sin offering which is for himself and make an atonement for himself and for his house. And he shall take the two goats and present them before the Lord at the door of the tabernacle of the congregation. 
And Aaron shall cast lots upon the two goats, one lot for the Lord and the other lot for the scapegoat. And Aaron shall bring the goat upon which the Lord's lot fell and offer him for a sin offering. But the goat on which the lot fell to be the scapegoat shall be presented alive before the Lord to make an atonement with him and to let him go for a scapegoat into the wilderness. A question we might ask is, was the Day of Atonement a day of celebration? This is their greatest day of the year. Is it like Christmas? Is it like Christmas is to us? I'm not sure how exciting it was. Christmas is exciting, of course. There's lots of joy at Christmas time and the gift giving and all the kids in anticipation of the gifts that they'll receive. Easter is also a celebration. Uh, The resurrection of Christ is a signal that Death for all believers has been defeated. That Christ arose a victor over the grave. He arose a victor over the dark domain. He lives forever with saints to reign. Hallelujah, Christ arose. That's what the song says. Well, Christianity has no death day. It might surprise you, but Christianity doesn't really have a death day. Good Friday is not Good Friday separated from Easter. So how joyous was the Day of Atonement? Well, perhaps there may have been found some sense of happiness in it, but most certainly this was a day of death. The number of animals killed in sacrifice on this day was multiplied. Blood freely flowed everywhere. By the time of Christ, it's said that although the work of the high priest as he went into the temple at that time was a singular work, he could only go in there by himself, Yet it took up to 500 priests to get all the animals ready for sacrifice. It was a very, very bloody day. It was the Day of Atonement, meaning that this is the Day of Atonement, a national day of atonement for Israel. Now the Hebrew word for atonement is kafar. It means to cover, but more than to cover, it means to appease. It means to placate and also to take away. So these are sacrifices that are made to cover sins, to take them away, and to placate God. Atonement is a covering in the sense that our sins are covered so they're not seen by God. And the blood of Christ is that covering for sin, and our sins are hidden in Christ. Hidden things are, are, are that seems to be a recurring theme in the tabernacle. Oh, it's amazing how many things were hidden. Things that are not to be seen by Israel. We'll, we'll get into that more as we talk about the mercy seat. Things that Israel can't see. There was nothing that happened on the inside of the tabernacle that was seen. There was never anybody, anybody invited in to take a tour of the tabernacle. So the Day of Atonement was a day that's, that's all the meanings are shrouded and mystery things are hidden, but it is a day of symbolically covering Israel's sins. And this is the day that God could bless them as a nation. And it happened on the tenth day of the seventh month. And then it was followed by the Feast of Tabernacles on the fifteenth day. And that was the last feast before harvest. And that was required for God to bless them in the harvest. Now, if you'll notice verse number one again, it says, And the Lord spake unto Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron when they offered before the Lord and died. That references the sins of Nadab and Abihu. That's in chapter 10 when they offered strange fire before the Lord. So they were consumed by God, by fire that came down from heaven because of their transgression. 
And all of these things happen according to God's sovereign plan. And it's not coincidental that God symbolized his unique holiness by instructing Israel at this time, right immediately after that, to observe the Day of Atonement. And in verse number number 2, we see that God shut everybody out. Even the high priest can't enter the most holy part of the tabernacle except on this day, only on one day of the year, and the penalty for entering was death. Now some assume that this part follows upon the sins of Nadab and Abihu because they may have done this very thing, that they went into the most holy place and went in without authorization and went behind the veil to see the Ark of the Covenant. Some people believe that. I don't think it's correct. I don't think it's the reason that we have verse number 2, and this, that's the motivation that God shot, shut everybody out. But rather, I think that what God tried to do here, or what he did do, was to re-emphasize his holiness. That there is no person who can approach him without divine permission. You cannot come to him without the cleansing ritual. That is, to come to him except in the way that God commands. Now, we're going to examine the Day of Atonement, and I want to show you some of its features, some of the truths that are expressed through each of them. And uh, this is our first sermon on the text. And we won't resume this for six, seven weeks from now. But I did want to talk to you. I wanted to start tonight because of Lord's Supper. And I want to tie this in to that observance. So first, we want to look at the Day of Atonement was the day of a day of humility. And we understand that point better through... The previous 11 sermons, speaking of the clothing of the priest, that his clothes were for glory and beauty. They represented beauty, they represented majesty, the worthiness and supreme glory of Jesus Christ. And when the priest put on that full dress, that separated him from the people. He stood out from them. He was recognizable. And I can imagine there were times that it was very hard for him to maintain his humility when all eyes are now centered on him. He's different from them. He's privileged. And you remember at this time, at, at first, when all of this took place, when God gave Moses all of these instructions, there was no king in Israel. There was no king that took that spot of honor. And so it was the high priest who, who was the pinnacle of honor in Israel. And most likely, there were times that it was very hard for him to separate his own feelings of grandeur, understanding that the only reason that he wore these clothes for glory and beauty was because of God. This is to represent God. And unlike many preachers today who would think the day is all about me, not the high priest, he was to be humbled by this, to know that this is the day for God. Now we notice then how God took care of the self-aggrandizement Because on this day, on this one day of all of Israel's sacrifices, God stripped away everything that would make the priest conceited. And it's totally opposite of what we would expect. On the day of Israel's highest religious observance, we expect that we would see the priest in these great robes, these beautiful robes, fully decked in everything that God had. And shouldn't he be glorious from head to foot on such a high and holy day? But God doesn't work that way. And so the priest was to take off that beautiful robe, the blue robe of the ephod that represented heaven. He didn't put on the multicolored ephod and beautiful stones of the breastplate. The curious golden girdle with all the brilliant colors, that wasn't worn. 
And then neither was that special hat, the one that has the golden plate that's attached. Instead, the priest would put on only the linen breeches, covered up by a white linen coat. He reverted to the plain white belt that the other priest wore. He put on the simple white bonnet. And so he was in pure white, dressed in pure white from his head to his feet. In verse 4, he shall put on the holy linen coat, and he shall have the linen breeches upon his flesh, and shall be girded with a linen girdle, and with a linen mitre shall he be attired. These are holy garments, therefore shall he wash his flesh in water, and so put them on. Now I'd like to show you some pictures of the priest and his duties on this day, and in none of these pictures is the priest in his special outfit that we spent all of that time detailing the significance of every single piece. Now we come to the most holy day in Israel and he's not even wearing what we so meticulously studied and talked about. Now in our first picture, we see the priest entering the most holy place with the censer and blood of bowl. And you notice what he's wearing. When he goes in to appear before God, it's the simple white dress. Second picture shows the high priest. This is actually leaving the tabernacle going to the outside with the blood to go back towards the altar and still you see him in that simple dress in the third picture the priest is standing before the altar where sacrifices are made still in the simple white clothing next picture shows the priest standing in the holy of holies before the ark of the covenant ready to sprinkle the blood on the mercy seat and there he stands only in the white clothing then in this picture, the next one, this is the priest placing his hands on the head of the scapegoat and confessing the sins of the people on his head. And still he is in that simple white dress. Now we notice also that he was told to wash his, his flesh in water before he put these clothes on. Ordinarily what he would do is wash his hands and his feet. But on this day the priest was thoroughly cleansed. The priest... In his dress and in his washing was a, was a symbol of purity. His humiliation was to step out of those robes of glory and to appear as an ordinary priest. White is the color and white is always the color that is closest to God. Revelation 4.4 4, And round about the throne were four and twenty seats. And upon the seats I saw four and twenty elders sitting clothed in white raiment. And they had on their heads crowns of gold around the throne, seats with the clothing of white. Revelation 7 verse 9, After this I beheld, and lo, a great multitude, which no man could number, of all nations and kindreds and people and tongues, stood before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes and palms in their hands. Revelation 7:14 And I said unto him, Sir, thou knowest. And he said to me, These are they which came out of great tribulation and have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. And in Revelation 19:8, And to her, that is, to the bride, the church, was granted that she should be arrayed in fine linen, clean and white, for the fine linen is the righteousness of saints. So the priests went in before God in purity and humility. And the simple clothing is the type that pictures him most as a servant. Well, we're trying to see Christ in the Old Testament. In all of these pictures, is Christ in this? Is he seen in the clothing, the change of the clothing from glory to simplicity? 
Well, here's the truth that's taught by the change. And the truth is that Christ laid aside his visible glory. That he stripped himself of his majesty and of his kingship. He took off the glory of the Son of God to become a lowly, humble servant of men. And he made himself of of no reputation. He was made in the likeness of men. And though he was God, and though he was the fullness of God, he put aside that glory to replace it with human flesh. And as John wrote, he became flesh and he dwelled among us. He pitched his tent among us. Or in the same expression, we can actually say he tabernacled with us. Ordinarily, no one saw his glory when he was in the flesh. But then John was careful to write further in John 1.14. And the word was made flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And so John added this part about seeing the glory of Christ in the transfiguration so that we could never make the mistake that Christ is only a man, but he is also fully God. Now, on the Day of Atonement, when the priest was most visible, when the nation had gathered to view the special proceedings of that day, the focus was off of the priest as being glorious. But rather now, he's seen in ordinary servant duties. And this pictures the humiliation of Christ. Then secondly, the Day of Atonement was a day of sacrifices. Of course it was. It's a day of sacrifices. Sacrifices consumed Old Testament worship. And you're not surprised by that. You've heard the messages. And all I've done is inundate you with sacrifices. Constantly sacrifices. There were four sacrifices on the day of a day of atonement. Aside from the five daily sacrifices that were also made. Sin offerings, burnt offerings were made. And we've talked about the importance of each of those before. But I do want to emphasize the one offering that Aaron made for himself and his family. This is in verse number 6. And Aaron shall offer his bullock of the sin offering, which is for himself. And make an atonement for himself and for his house. Now Aaron was a type of Christ in many ways. But he was not a type of Christ in this. Christ did not make an atonement for himself. There was none needed. Now for Aaron, yes, because Aaron is a sinful man. And before he could, he could officiate at the altar for the people, first of all, he must be cleansed from his own personal sins. And the priesthood of Christ is a better priesthood because this is a step that is not needed. In fact, the absence of this step is the only way that he could replace all of those inferior sacrifices with the one that would be the last one needed forever. And he ended sacrifices only because he was suitable to God as perfect satisfaction. Now, the peculiar better sacrifice becomes more apparent in the next part. The Day of Atonement was different from all the other days because of this special sacrifice offered only once each year. And this is the scapegoat offering. Now, we've not seen that before, not in any of the other sacrifices. One animal was not sufficient to picture this part of Christ's work. It takes two. One lives and one dies. One animal can't do both, but the Son of God did. Sin was put on him and he died, but he arose and now he lives. 
If you look in verse number 7, And he shall take the two goats and present them before the Lord at the door of the tabernacle of the congregation. And Aaron shall cast lots upon the two goats, one lot for the Lord and the other lot for the scapegoat. And Aaron shall bring the goat upon which the Lord's lot fell and offer him for a sin offering. But the goat on which the lot fell to be the scapegoat shall be presented alive before the Lord to make an atonement with him and to let him go for a scapegoat into the wilderness. And Aaron shall bring the bullock of the sin offering, which is for himself, and shall make an atonement for himself and for his house, and shall kill the bullock of the sin offering, which is for himself. In this passage, there are many, many golden nuggets of doctrine. The concepts have been covered before in many of the other messages, but here the visualizations come to us in a different way. And these are very, very impressive, what Christ did. Now, the two main doctrines that are expressed in this sacrifice are expiation and propitiation. Now, you remember those? We talked about those before. That expiation is the release of guilt. Expiation is toward man. It's expressed in the forgiveness of his sins. I mention it briefly here. We'll spend just a little bit more time on it when we study the mercy seat. But that's what expiation is. It's the removal of guilt. Aaron was to cast lots to choose between the two goats. This is not a personal choice that he makes, but this is to show there is no partiality towards the one that is chosen. One goat is killed and the other is loosed. And as far as the eye could tell, as you looked at these goats and you examined them, these two goats are exactly alike. Both of them are healthy. Both are equally fit. The weak and sickly, they're never considered to be options. So the best animals that they could find were taken and then a lot was cast. What you think about dice or something like that. Casting a lot to decide which of these two would be chosen. And the one on whom the lot for the Lord, that the Lord fell, was taken and killed. That goat was not for expiation. That goat is for propitiation. That's the other great doctrine taught in this passage Propitiation is the satisfaction of sin. It's an offering to the justice of God to appease him for the, of his wrath for sin. Now, we, we don't really need to be great theologians to figure out why animal sacrifices were never good enough. There is no animal that can expiate sin or propitiate God's wrath. And if they could, that would make the sacrifice that God made cheap. The value of God's dignity can never be matched by putting away sin with an animal sacrifice. And then neither can a person be valuable enough. Well, that would be a step up in a sense to sacrifice a man, but still it falls far short of the glory of God. And if human life would work, then that would make man equal to God's worth. And the only one who is equal to God's worth is God. And so therefore only God can do enough to satisfy his justice. And so thus we need God to die for sin. And this is why we have an incarnation. God, the infinite spirit, can't die. And so he must come in the weakness of human flesh to die and yet retain that matchless deity to ensure there is a, there is a worthy sacrifice. So on the Day of Atonement, the Lord's goat was killed and the other goat was set free. But the other goat was not freed until all the sins of the people had been confessed on his head. That's what we see in this picture. If we show that again. 
That's what he's doing, confessing sin on the head of this goat. So the priest would place his hands on the head of the goat and he transferred the people's sins to that goat through confession. And that is a, is a picture of the transference or the imputation of our sins to Christ. And then in the next picture, this goat is taken away. And he's taken outside of the camp and he's taken into the wilderness and that goat is set free. That is the scapegoat. You see it in verses 8 through 10. And what is that scapegoat? Well, we use that today. We use the term today to refer to someone who takes the blame or takes the fall for another. One who is innocent, who takes the blame for the guilty. And Jesus was our scapegoat. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. And so it was the innocent one who took our sins away that we could be reconciled to God. But that other goat, he doesn't fare as well. That goat was taken and killed. And that's the other side of this. Sin is taken away only because the innocent died. Christ, the innocent one, died. And through his death, God's justice was satisfied. Two goats are needed. One can't demonstrate all that Christ did when he sacrifice himself it takes two to show that at the same time that our sins are forgiven that God is atoned that sins are expiated guilt is removed it's no longer counted against us but then the ultimate punishment that has to be pictured there must be a life taken to satisfy God now we note then that conspicuously absent is a third goat and this is what would be necessary to picture what most people believe about salvation. But then wait, you don't only need a third goat, you need a fourth one. And you would need a fifth one. And you would need a sixth one. You need goats to match the number of the entire human race from the beginning to the end. What would those goats be for? Well, you'd have to kill every one of them. You can't turn any of them loose because you've got a picture. You've got to picture sins that are forgiven... But the sinner has not been set free. Sins are forgiven. The atonement's been made. But the sinner's not set free. So these goats have another name. These are Arminian goats. They picture Christ dying for people who go to hell anyway. I've searched the Bible through and I can't find those goats. I can't find them in the Old Testament. I can't find them in the New Testament. They must be hiding somewhere because they know they're going to be killed. So can you tell me, how, how do you picture that group of people with this sacrifice? Sins atoned and sins forgiven, yet still go to hell. How do you picture that? Well, you can't, because those people don't exist. There aren't any that Christ died for that don't have their sins atoned. There are none for whom sin is expiated and God is propitiated, and still they can't quite get to heaven. You can't find them because Christ came to save his people, and he really does save them. Now, let me show you another aspect of the problem. Now, for sure, Arminians believe that Christ's death is an atoning sacrifice. I mean, haven't we well, caught the, the, the main theme here? This is the Day of Atonement. And what is pictured with that live goat? Well, he's taken into the wilderness to symbolize that sins will never be remembered. He's released, and the sins are gone. Nobody wondered what happened to that goat. Nobody went looking for that goat to see where he went. They didn't care. Their sins are gone. Their sins are forgotten. 
Psalm 103, verse 12, As far as the east is from the west, so far he hath he removed our transgressions from us. Isaiah 43, 25, I, even I, am he that blotteth out thy transgressions for mine own sake, and will not remember thy sins. Now, we remember that these two goats are tied together as one symbol. What is it? Atonement. These are goats for atonement. And what takes place in the atonement? The death of one goat, the Lord's lot, accomplishes the promise of the second goat, the scapegoat. And the death ensures sins are taken away and forgotten. Is this atonement or is it not atonement? So how is it possible for those sins to be brought into judgment? The goat died, folks. The sins were forgiven. And so for what reason? What reason could that promise The promise made of the accomplishment of that goat be negated. And what would be the parallel of it? Christ died and sins are forgotten. And so to satisfy the Arminian, we need a universal hypothetical goat. This is the goat that hypothetically dies for everybody, but it doesn't do anything for most of them. And so the priest says, now we've got to kill the hypothetical goat too. He's not the scapegoat, that is the Azazel. That's the Hebrew for scapegoat. It's not the Azazel. This is whatever that Hebrew word is for a hypothetical goat. We've got to kill him. Now there are two great doctrines that are taught here. Christ died for his people. That is the doctrine of particular redemption. The second is that all for whom he died have their sins forgiven and they will be in heaven. And that's the doctrine of preservation and perseverance. Now you see the reason that we look for the Savior in the Old Testament is to find clarifying doctrine. It's really, really much harder to twist these kinds of things to make it say what it doesn't say, isn't it? But it's not as if we need more clarification. Because these doctrines are sufficiently clear in the New Testament. Read the Gospel of John. Hear it taught from the lips of the Savior in John 3 and in John 6 and John 10 and John 17. And I'm just foolish enough to believe that Jesus Christ was probably an expert on the accomplishment of his death. So this is our truth for the day of sacrifice. The truth is Christ removes and forgets our sins. And we believe that. Our Christology fully supports it. Our soteriology won't let us deny it. That Christ's death accomplished this really, not hypothetically. Well, we have more lessons to learn from the Day of Atonement. But this afternoon, what we want to do is to observe the Christian celebration of the Atonement. The Hebrews mourned over their sins. And there was death on this day. But Christians look at this day in a different way. Christ, in the atonement of Christ, Christ has has made a once-for-all sacrifice. So we don't anticipate that Christ will need to die again. The Hebrews said, we're going to have to do it all over again. Next year, we've got to do this again. And then the next year, it's got to be done again. But we rejoice in the perfect salvation that Christ's death accomplished for us. This does not need to be done again. By his death and his resurrection, we know we shall see God. Well, let's pray. And then we're going to sing the communion hymn. And we will begin our time at the Lord's table.
Heavenly Father, we come to you now and we thank you, Lord, for the depth of doctrine that we can explore in the Old Testament and certainly uh, to look at the Day of Atonement and see what was done there and draw out of that a perfect example of what Jesus Christ would do. We don't expect that we would examine the Old Testament and find something that's contrary to New Testament doctrine, but rather we find things that elucidate, things that clarify, things that make us sure of what you did. And then we find that every time we research this in the New Testament, that all of these things that happened in the Old are surely backed up so that we see there is, there is no mistake in what you do. You plan, you purpose, and you accomplish exactly what you plan and purpose. And we thank you, Lord, for that. We thank you for salvation that we find in Jesus Christ. And so we come to this time of the supper and we think that, yes, Christ did die. There was one day in which he did die. And there is one day in which he accomplished a perfect sacrifice that satisfied God forever. We thank you, Lord, that we have part in that sacrifice by our faith in Jesus Christ to take away our sins and have them forgotten forever. Thank you, Lord, for Jesus Christ and salvation that we have in him. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Rohnert Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us on the World Wide Web at www.bebaptist.org.